Because of the power of God. Um, before we get into it, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, this is your day, and we come here gathered in your name to worship you. For you alone are worthy. Uh, you are God. There is no other. There is none like you, Lord. Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. And we ask that you come into our presence in this room as well as we look at your word. I uh, pray that uh, we will dice it and slice it rightly as we look at your treat uh, Paul's treatise that you wrote through Paul to the people in Romans, both Jew and Gentile. Uh, be with us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, first another quick disclaimer um, in an effort not to plagiarize. I want to share my source material, uh, which comes from mostly uh, from all over the place, but mostly Tim Keller and James Boyce for this lesson today. By the way, you know the old joke about plagiarism. If you, uh, if you pull uh, from one person, it's plagiarism. Right, but if you get it from multiple sources, it's called research, right? It's not plagiarism. So I did a lot of research. It's, it's not, uh, and as always, the other disclaimers: be good Bereans. Test what I say according to the Word of God. Speaking of text, our text today is Romans nine through eleven, and I've been tasked to give you a thirty thousand foot view of this passage, um, where. And we'll get into it in these chapters. And then in the coming weeks, we'll drill down into chapters 9, 10, and 11 over a six-week period. My fellow elders will get down in the, the weeds, as it were, a little more than I will today. So when I became a believer in the fall of 1970 um, as a 16-year-old, I set out, I never read the Bible all the way through, and I set out to read it, the whole Bible, cover to cover. And I had a big old, thick, large print, New American Standard. That sucker must have weighed 30 pounds. Um, I went to churches at the time that all did KJV, but I had my NASB Bible. And I can't, today, I can't remember squat, but... It's amazing to me how God has blessed me that I can remember exactly what I thought when I first read the scriptures. I mean, it comes back to me. I remember thinking when I read any passage, I remember—I don't know why, it's uncanny, or it's the Spirit, I guess. He's blessed me with that. But I remember when I came to Romans 9 and 10, I was very disturbed. I kind of realized that I'm not in control of this like I thought I was, um, I remember thinking that, though, that uh, I really don't know God. I thought I did, but I don't, I don't know him at all. There's mysteries I don't know. And I um, uh, was troubled, to say the least, and, and it didn't go away very quickly. So, but I do remember thinking it couldn't possibly be God. It must be me, my misunderstanding, because I know God's good and right and so forth. So... If you have, and perhaps today as we look at it, you might find some of the words Paul says troubling, as I did. 
and you may still be working through it like I was and uh, to some extent always will. <clears throat> but, you know, that, that points out that for all of us, the Word of God can be mysterious and there are things we don't yet know about and maybe never will because, after all, we are finite creatures and God, <clears throat> God is infinite. But before we get to today's text, let's do a quick review of Romans. And I'm using the outline that I shared before just to look at this. I'm primarily going to do a little review on the right-hand side, talking about the righteousness of God, which he brings up um, much today. So try to make this quick. But we can't, we can't it's, it may be redundant, but it's so important, so very um, foundational to th these three chapters. It's good review. So after greeting them, Paul explained that God, the creator, what he requires of his creatures. Uh, the righteousness of God is required of man. And from chapter 1, verses uh, 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, he lays out how man is radically corrupt and in a hopeless state. He can't stand before a holy God um, without a mediator. Simply put, to be saved and heaven bound, must have, one must have righteousness. And we don't have any. That's the problem. He said, is there any good? No, not even one. And he explains that this righteousness is revealed from heaven and it's in Christ alone that we get it. And in verses 3, 24 and 25, and it says we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, who God, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Christ alone can save since um, he does have righteousness and his sacrifice as I... As our substitute propitiated the wrath of God or satisfied the wrath of God and brought us into adoption and friendship with God. Then beginning in 327, that's the hinge verse where in, uh, through chapter 5, Paul explains that this righteousness is received by faith alone. We're justified by faith alone. We went over that a lot. He uses Abraham in his example. And that's important to, in our lesson today to see we're, we're, he's going to tie back to that. Um, that it's all, and he's going to state today that it's always been that way. It's always been by faith in the Messiah that saves. It's not a New Testament thing, just a New Testament thing. The Old Testament, um, Jews' salvation came the same way ours does, through faith in the Messiah. It's, the, it's Christ that saves everybody. So we talked a lot about that great exchange where we get his righteousness, and he takes our sin. <clears throat> and we inherited that sin, but we've had enough sins of our own as well that Christ took on the cross as our representative as the second Adam. So he gives us that freely, and now we have his perfect record of righteousness. When we come before God, or when he sees us, that's exactly how he sees us, as though we have the record of Christ. And it's very, there's, Romans is a very legal language, uh, kind of uh, forensic tone to it in that, those chapters. So, then in chapter 6, uh, we see the righteousness is realized through sanctification. 
which um, God calls us to be, which is to say God calls us to be holy. Uh, again, this is not just a New Testament thing, but um, Levit- um, Leviticus twenty twenty three. I says, uh, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples. And he calls us to that. And free grace doesn't give us a green light to just do anything we want. Um, as, and he answers that objection numerous times. But it should, the grace should lead us to repentance. <clears throat> we have a new master, and we're united now to him. When he died, we died. Uh, we have a new husband. We talked about that, as it were. And yet we still struggle with sin and do the very thing we hate in chapter 7. We have a um, great comfort, though, last week in chapter 8. Well, actually, two weeks ago in chapter 8, that wonderful verse. We have, there's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And um, for those of you that are here last week, um, we learned these great and precious promises in the second half of chapter 8, he tells us that the righteousness of God is retained in glorification. And uh, as the tagline of one of my friend's business was, the, the best is yet to come. And Paul really drills that home in chapter 8. And some of the greatest promises in all the Bible we find in the great 8, chapter 8 of Romans. So... Just to mention a few, he says, For the, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. And like that, wise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And he, we know that he does, uh, works all things together for our good. And those he foreknew, he predestined the great uh, chain and conformed to the image of his Son, and then um, he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? These are all just glorious passages. He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. If he, if he gave us his son, he's going to give us everything else, basically, Paul says. After all, everything else would be a lesser thing. He won't hold it back. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who is to condemn? Christ is the one that died uh, no one shall separate, not tribulation, distress, sword, danger, all that. As it is written, for your sake all day long, I have been, the sheep has uh, been slaughtered for the sheep, Christ was. So in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I'm sure that neither life, death, angels, and rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, and powers, height, depth, anything in creation can separate us from the love of God. We can't read those words without being on the mountain. Um, and I think Paul was. It, he comes to this most glorious crescendo of tremendous promise and confidence in that chapter. And basically, he's conveyed that God guarantees that our final perseverance, because our salvation is not based on anything we do, but on Christ. From the love of God in Christ Jesus, it comes from God. So it's not based on our will and strength. So that brings us today to chapter 9. <clears throat> now, well, it may seem out of sync to 
it's, but there's such an abrupt change of tone in chapter 9. I mean, he's, he's full of positive and confidence. And now, the first couple of verses, he's saying stuff like, um, I have great anguish in my heart and great sorrow. So the tone is definitely a change in, in, in the tone that Paul is saying here. And you can imagine Paul saying, you know, someone saying to Paul, hey, hold on, Paul. You've told us that when God calls someone, he will bring him home, right? But what about the Jews? Um, God called them and went to them, but most of them had rejected Christ. So what do you say to that uh, at the present time? So maybe, maybe God's calling and purpose can be um, thwarted and rejected, right? That, that's a natural argument that one might have from all those chapters <clears throat> that would <clears throat> come to Paul with that. So let's get into that. <clears throat> Excuse me. So consistent with my previous foolishness um, in the Sesame Street uh, theme I've been doing, today's lesson is brought to you by the letter S. And S stands for sanctification. Uh, that is kind of the theme in these chapters. God is sovereign over all. That's the overarching theme today. So in chapter 9, we see it. Back up one. <clears throat> so in verses 1 through 5, we see Paul's passionate heart for his people. And so why doesn't all Israel believe when the message of all people should be clearest to them, right? <clears throat> he, Paul here pulls a Moses. He, he says, I wish I could be, if you look, at, and by the way, if you haven't already, open your Bibles. A lot of, you, I'll be talking, helpful if you look at the verses as I go. But Paul pulls a Moses. He said, I would like to be anathematized. I, I wish I could be, essentially go to hell, be condemned, if it meant winning my people to the Lord. And that, you know, Moses had the same kind of thing when he said, Lord, if you destroy these people, take me instead. Um, you know, it's, it's very Mos Moses-esque, if that's a word. I wish, pardon me? Mosaic. Mosaic. Yeah, that's, that's a better fit. Thank you, Cindy. <laughs> it was very mosaic. And um, so he, he then, though, lists eight great advantages. What, what advantage hath the Jew? Much in every way. He he goes over these, and one, they were adopted as sons. Uh, again, all, all throughout, Paul quotes the Old Testament more than probably any other New Testament book. He pulls from Exodus 4.22. <clears throat> Israel is my firstborn son. He's, they adopted him. Second, the privilege was the divine, divine glory, the Shekinah glory that dwelled in the temple, in, in his presence, in the midst of the tabernacle. And, of course, we know that Jesus is the greater manifestation of God's presence. You know, the, John says, The word dwelt among us and became flesh, and we beheld his glory. The third advantage were the covenants. The covenant with Abraham, David, um, Isaac, all the patriarchs, Moses. 
In each case, with each of these, he promises to bless unconditionally. And all of these guys are a type and shadow pointing to that greater prophet, the greater priest, greater king that will fulfill all these promises unconditionally. So the fourth advantage, the receiving of the law. To the Jews, he gave the Torah, and, um, which refers most notably to the ten, not limited to, but certainly the Ten Commandments we think of. Fifth, the temple worship, a visible order of worship. And he, uh, Hebrews describes it well and outlines how the people could approach God, can approach God back then and now in Hebrews. But God is very particular, <laughs> we see, of how you are, he wants to be worshipped. There was a blood sacrifice, a priest mediating. And we couldn't, we can't, couldn't and can't just approach God willy-nilly any way, any way we want. So he's very specific on how he wants to be worshipped. And then six, the promises that we looked at last week refers to um, he gave the Jews to the many, well, last week was more our promises, ours and Gentile and Jews. But in the Old Testament, he gave the promises and the prophecies about the coming Messiah. And beginning all the way back to 315, the great Evangelion, where I'll punish the, the serpent and you'll strike his, he, he will strike your heel, but you're going to, my seed will strike his head. Name referring, of course, to the Messiah. And so uh, he gave us the patriarchs and not only Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but probably alluding also to Moses, Joseph, Joshua, David, Samuel, etc. So God spoke through all these men, and they foreshadowed Christ. And in the eighth, last, there may be more, but I found eight, from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. That's very important. Jesus, Jesus was Jewish, and if he's going to become a man, he had to take on some race and culture, right? He chose, and he honored the the Jewish people by becoming Jewish. Now, they, they weren't called Jews at the time. That wasn't until Judah. But he, that people group, he, he just, um, when he came as a man, oh, actually, they were. I'm, we're talking about when he was born. He, he became a Jew. I mean, he, he could have become, an, uh, well, he couldn't have become American. They were, we weren't around yet, but you get the idea. So that was a great honor. That was a great advantage. So now we, we see that there were... Uh, he, he tells about two Israels, and there's, uh, that alludes to the, the spiritual Israel and the physical, uh, the ethnic, physical group, and the spiritual group. So let's unpack that. <clears throat> Not because God's promises had failed. Paul, basically that's the theme of these three chapters. No, he hasn't failed. God has not failed. Um, and verse 6 in chapter 9, if you look at verse 6, this I think is a very key verse in this passage. Not all Israel is Israel. And so we must define Israel properly. Uh, definitions are important. Now, for a long time, I had the notion that, you know, Old Testament Jews were saved. New Testament believers are saved. Um, I didn't have this concept that uh, Gentiles back or 
you know, the, the pagan, the dogs, could be saved in the Old Testament time, in the Old Covenant. And that simply was erroneous. And the reality is, and the Bible teaches that both in both new and old, there were sheep and goats. In the old time of Joshua, you know, the, probably the best of times, there were um, Jews that were not believers. And conversely, in the worst of times, in Babylon, God had his remnant. There were many that were, even after they were blatantly, egregiously disobeyed and were being punished, there were believers there in Babylon. Same is true today. So God has always and will always have his remnant. In verses 7 through 9, he uses the example of Isaac and Ishmael. Abraham had two sons, but only Isaac was the child of promise and accepted by God. Ishmael was Abraham's physical descendant, but not his spiritual descendant. In verses 10 through 13, he doubles down and he goes even further with Jacob and Esau. He unpacks it even further. And, um, of course, only Jacob inherited the promises. Uh, Verse 11 tells us that God has purpose in his election. Now, we may not be able to know or understand the purpose, but he has a purpose. He doesn't just willy-nilly go, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a believer by the toe. (laughs) He has purpose in who he chooses. Now, we don't know the why. We never will, perhaps. But what we do, what Paul does uh, is, you know, he uses the term election. So, speaking of defining our terms, what does that mean? Well, it means what you think it means. <laughs> um, when we elect a president, we vote for him, or he, we choose him. That word is, I'm doing some study, is the Greek word that means to choose or to pull out. It's God chooses some and not others. Yes, sir. Right. That's right. Do we have the mic? We we need to. Were you finished? Right. So God quickly, eliminated say all that of these. again in 25 <laughs> words or less. God eliminated all of the alternatives to his own choice in that Jacob and Esau were born of one mother, and before they had done anything good or bad, God had chosen one and rejected the other. Right. So it's not on our behavior, it's not on our race, it's not on our family, it's God's sovereignty alone. Right, those were going to be my next sentences, but thank you. That, it's before, in other words, God does not choose based, we know for sure, God, he, Paul says that he does not choose based on our performance. Um, again, we don't know why he chooses who he chooses. Um, our Armenian friends today would say something like, well, God looked down the corridors of time and foresaw that Steve would uh, believe and that Joe Blow wouldn't believe, but... We know uh, that's, uh, we knew, in verse 12 of chapter 9, 
Paul counters and makes clear, not by works, but by whom he calls. It's his calling. Uh, And works means our efforts, our sincerity, um, you know. But, and he says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. That's a strong word, hated. Now, we, we must be careful here not to confuse the word we associate with hate, we, we connote it with an emotional, um, strong dislike. And it's in the sense like Jesus kind of talked about this when he said, you should love your mother and father more. Uh, if you don't hate your mother and father, then you can't be my disciple. He said something like that. I'm paraphrasing. But why did he say that? Did he mean you want, he, we should hate it? Like we think of hate, I, I hate Carolina or, you know, I, <laughs> It's not the same. Sorry. I can't help but bring in Duke, the weather, and every time I talk. So it's, it's a, no, it, it's plain that he wants us, our, by contrast and comparison, we should love God more than anything, even our parents who he commanded that we honor. Um, yeah, I think, I think the word, um, which word? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, now this is, um, this is probably a good time to bring up the whole idea of passing over. We call, uh, there's the elect and there's the reprobate. And so God is active in his choosing us. He is very active. And imagine a piled heap of damned people. And again, he doesn't go willy-nilly, but... He, he chooses some and others. He just lets them to their own consequences of their... He's passive. It's not that he actively... I'm going to... Uh, Jones is going to... I'm going to send to hell, but Smith, he's, he's getting in. And, but he... Or he, he's not... That's, that's all called the idea. That's called... You know, we're talking about double predestination when we said God uh, actively damns someone. So... The idea, though, is we call it reprobate. He is passing over. It's a very passive thing for, in contrast to his active. And I'm getting off my script, but this, this is, um, so it raises, you know, why does God save some and not others? It raises that question. And, uh, or, you know, that's the wrong question. It, the question is, why did God, isn't why didn't God save everyone or anyone, the question we should ask is why in the world did God save any? Because we all are hell-bound deserving sinners. That's the mystery that he would elect anybody. Um, More on that later. So uh, what is it? So does it mean that God's choice is very arbitrary? Uh, No. Paul says that God has no reasons. He just tells us there's no superiority of believers. Believers aren't better in any way over unbelievers. Um, as the saying goes, the ground is level for all of us at the cross. It's not because we live in America, have more humility than the other guy. Uh, if it were, we would be the authors of our salvation, right? Uh, and we would sing praise, not only sing praises to God, but we'd sing praises to me. I, you know, I, I was so wise, I chose God, you know, whatever. We, we don't do that. That would be unconscionable. <clears throat> so we should remember 
that election is not just appalling doctrine. It was also taught by Jesus. Jesus said, I know who I have chosen. It's all, all through John 13 and 17. It's a good place to hunt for those. Jesus supported this doctrine. And it's rich of his teaching of election. Uh, particularly the priestly prayer in chapter 17 of John particularly. He said, I don't pray for everyone. I'm praying for those who you have given me, Lord. It's very explicit, and I'm paraphrasing. <clears throat> if, so, uh, it's, again, our salvation is entirely because of God's grace. So, in uh, chapter 9, verses 14 through 29, there's this whole section of the potter's freeman, freedom. And um, in 14 through 18, he says, ask, is God unfair? I mean, that's, I remember that was my initial response. That's not fair. And that, as Americans, that's a, you know, we, we want, uh, we, uh, every, every area of life, if you study hard, you get great. You might you make A's instead of F's if you study hard. You know, every, we're so oriented in America to achievement, and that's, that's great for putting men on the moon, but it's not great theology. It's not great. It doesn't do a lick for us uh, because it's not based on that, that God, again, looks down and sees that. It's on his mercy. And he cannot be more clear. He uses the example of Moses who said, um, as you well know, I will have mercy on who I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on who I have compassion. I don't know how I can make it any clearer. Um, than that so and and look at verse 16 he says so then it depends not on human will or exertion that doesn't mean exercise that means your works doing doing something it depends our it's entirely on God's grace but on God who has mercy verse 16 says yes Hang on, hang on, let the mic, while the mic's coming, um, we're going to then talk about Pharaoh hardening his heart, that difficult passage. Did you wear your step counter today? Uh, I've always found Zechariah chapter 3 very helpful with this, and the the throne room scene where Satan is uh, standing before the angel of the Lord and accusing Joshua the high priest, and... Christ says, the angel of the Lord says, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And the point is that we're all in the fire already. Right. It's just that God chooses to sovereignly, graciously extract some and That's leave right. the rest. Right on. When we get to heaven, we're all going to smell like smoke. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> so, um, you know, this thing about Pharaoh, I've hardened. God, in Exodus, it says Pharaoh, hardened Pharaoh, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. You see both phrases. And you'll notice, I want to point out, that there are just as many verses that say that Pharaoh hardened his heart as there are that God hardened his heart. So, so which is it? I think they run concurrently. Um, and so, uh, obviously, that gets back to this the issue of reprobate, God let Pharaoh to his own uh, doing, and he hardened his heart naturally. It's, it's the spiraling down Paul talked about in chapters um, 1, 2, and the first half of 3. It's our 
default mode as it would for all of us. That doesn't mean we're as evil as we can be, but we, we went over that. So God elects some, and he leaves others to their own doing. Um, so verse 22 and 23 says God could eject all, but he doesn't. The question, again, is why does he save any? And in verse 24 and 29, he quotes the Old Testament where it's prophesied that many Jews would not believe and many Gentiles would believe and many Jews um, both would and would not. Um, and you can read that uh, in the Old Testament. He, he's quoting there. So in 30 through 33, he talks about a faith righteousness versus works righteousness. This is from this section on, um, he's, he's really reviewing chapters 4 and 5 of Romans. Um, but because Israel rejected the way of salvation by faith alone. And these verses seem topsy-turvy. Um, the Gentiles who didn't have the, didn't seek righteousness have obtained it. And the Jews who did seek for righteousness have not obtained it. Why not? Because they pursued um, the, the goal, they had an impossible goal, righteousness by their own works. And it's this mentality that I try hard, God owes me, I think is the, the mentality that the, certainly the Pharisees, if not the majority of the Jews, um, they knew the law, we had the law, and they, if they obeyed it, they were smug, thinking they did obey it. And that they got it. And that's a barrier to seeing our sin and our need for a Savior when you think you've got it and you're, you're living up to it. So they were, their pride, uh, they were offended by the salvation of Christ. So, which brings us to chapter 10, which is our responsibility, the theme in chapter 10. So, in the why question... Israel was ignorant of salvation by God's righteousness instead of their own righteousness. And in verse 1 2, they says we have a they had a zeal for knowledge, but their zeal is misplaced and mistaken. Zeal is not enough. In other words, um, just because you know something and are zealous about it doesn't uh, if you don't believe the right thing, it matters. You'll hear people say today, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. And that is uh, a lie. <laughs> you, uh, we can give a great examples of that. Of course it matters what you believe. But the Jews, they had the zeal for knowledge. They knew the Torah. But they didn't understand. They didn't have the right knowledge. It, it must be based on right knowledge. That knowledge of... All, it, it pointed to the Messiah, which they are, many of them, most of them, I think, at that church, were rejecting it. And that church, by the way, is probably a church plant of Jews that were dispersed from Jerusalem. So it was a mix of Jews and Gentiles there. But uh, believing Jews started a church, we think. So they recognized um, their need for righteousness, but tried to create their own and uh, verse 4, we, once we grab the radical nature of Christ's work, it is the end of legalism. 
and which I haven't come to an end yet. My, I'm still working on that. Um, so, and then verses five through eight, again, Paul is just regurgitating what he told us in previous chapters. There are two ways of righteousness. You can get there. If, you've, if you're perfect, you, you'll make it, but no, none of us are, so we must have Christ's righteousness. This is, we beat this hard in the previous chapters. And Moses, uh, in Leviticus 18.5, tells us we must obey the entire law to be saved. And in Deuteronomy 30.14, he tells us that we can get a new life through simple belief. You know, the, he, he says here, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, and you can do it. Well, that, that's a quote from the Leviticus, I think, 20, 26, I believe it is. Paul's quoting there. We can do it. <laughs> it's, it reminds me of um, Eric's um, lesson. Uh, you got this. He, he used the Nike example. But anyway, uh, he, he is saying that the word, it's by faith and hearing the word of God is what builds faith, the hearing of the word. So believe. How do we become righteous God's way? In 9 through 15, he says we must um, we understand what Christ did in history, and it's, it's not what Jesus uh, did. It's what, it is what Jesus did. It's not what he would do. It's what he did. Somebody has a license plate of that, I think. Um, anyway, we uh, saving faith, he goes on to say, consists of knowledge, assent, and trust. You've got to know the truth, and you not only just know it, that's not enough, You've got to understand it, assent to it. Uh, this is true. We, you must believe it's true. And then that all-important third step is um, the word. The, it comes from the word fiduciary. You have to throw yourself on it, believe in it. If you don't, if you don't believe, truly believe it, and yield to it, you're not saved. Even though you may know know the truth, you've got to be, uh, receive it and embrace it. So that's what he goes through there. These, um, and yet, Israel, in uh, verses 10 through 21 of chapter 10, uh, we see that God, uh, Israel, the, the multi-ethnic uh, Jewish people, by and large, rejected this way of righteousness because they were ignorant. Um, in, in verses 16 and 17, he explains that not all Israel has believed, as Isaiah foretold they wouldn't. And 18, did they not hear the message? Of course they did, but they didn't understand it. The Jews knew about the need for righteousness, and the Gentiles did not. You know, that he says here of Israel, he says, All day long I've held out my hands to an obstinate, stiff-necked, disobedient, contrary people. <clears throat> For time's sake, I'm going to skip to Romans 11 because a lot of what he's doing in chapter 10, uh, just for time's sake, I don't have time to go over it, but he's referring a lot to chapters uh, 4 and 5 that we've been over of this, by faith alone, through Christ alone, um, revealed by God's word alone, by grace alone, and uh, to the glory of God alone. So in Romans 11, the theme is God and Israel. Has God's promise failed? Uh, so back up, though. You're, 
uh, go back backwards. 11, Romans 11, first, keep going back. There you go. So, did God reject Israel? The short, sweet, emphatic answer is, heck no. No, he didn't. Israel's belief, unbelief, is not total. There's um, many that will come. So, God has not rejected Israel. Israel has rejected God, so, is the, the simple truth. The majority are hard toward the gospel. And Paul uses himself as a case that he hasn't rejected all of Israel because he's a prime example. I'm a Jew, he says, and I haven't rejected the gospel. And in verse 2, he says, God foreknew a people from eternity. And he asked, has God failed us or did God fail Israel? And by extension, has God failed us? And so should we reject this doctrine of eternal security, you know, I grew up, I always heard the phrase, once saved, always saved. And, you know, God won't lose. He's not, it's not like our salvation is like car keys that he can misplace them and lose us. He's going to take us all the way home, right? Is that, is that in jeopardy here with what he's teaching? And so, no, um, absolutely not. And he gives, and that leads us to the he gives, and this is kind of a summary, then we're going to do some Q&A. We might get done early today, actually. So go to the um, next slide there, but I'm going to skip over all this and get to, keep going, keep going, keep going. Oh, while we're there, you know, I think one of the key scriptures in these passages is this, the whole metaphor of the olive tree. To understand what Paul's teaching here is to that think of the true church as a tree, and the branches are the believers in the Old Testament branches um, were the Jewish people. He has um, grafted us into that tree. You know, they they were the ones his chosen people, and yet he has grafted us in. And, and he goes on to say that. A very sober warning that if the Jews disbelieved that they would be severed from the tree, if we, contrary, we shouldn't be so smug to think that we can't be if we don't believe. We can, they can, and they can be grafted back in as well. So, you know, I'm going to stop here. And I know for many people, the reason this, these passages are so troubling, you read all this and you may think that uh, a, the doctrine of election is troubling because it, make, it may make some of you ask the question, am I elect? When you hear, hear it put this way, that's a natural fear that you might not be elect. And let me encourage you, that that is the wrong question to ask. The question you should ask yourself is, do I believe? And if you believe, you can know, you will know, and you, it's, Scripture is very explicit. If you believe, you are elect. Right? What, what does Paul say? Um, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and you will be saved in the house. 
It's, it's, that's the question. Not, don't be troubled over this. And the other thing is if you're coming to this truth, it's just hard. Uh, I don't get it. Hang in there. Keep, keep wrestling with it. And I, I hope and pray for you, if that's where you are, that one day this will be the most glorious, comforting um, concept and doctrine in the world. It really uh, should lead us to, and it, it leads to Paul, as we'll see in the last thing in this, this uh, in chapter, end of chapter 11. His, his doxology is amazing. But hopefully, that's, if you're struggling with this, that's where it'll, it'll lead you to. It's most comfortable. Without the sovereignty of God, I would be in total despair. And I, I know many of you would too. So let's look at these. Um, Paul gives seven arguments. Go, keep going, Bo. And, and they're mysteries. Uh, we're, we talked a little bit about that. Keep going. This was uh, the first Sunday that I omitted. Uh, keep going. Okay, there we are. Oh, no, actually, keep going. This is the first Sunday that I didn't give Dorothy explicit instructions of when to change slides, so I apologize, but keep going. Okay, here we are. So Paul gives seven arguments. You know, a lot of Romans are all about arguments. Um, that's a positive term, by the way. It doesn't mean you're in a fight with your wife. I'm arguing with her. No, I'm making a point. Okay, so he gives seven main arguments in these chapters, 9 through 11. Number one, God's historical purpose toward the Jewish nation has not failed because all whom God has elected to salvation are or will be saved. And in Romans 9, 6 through 24, he says, there's a, he distinguishes between the national visible Israel and, you're good, I'll tell you when to change. Um, yeah, stay on one. I keep going back to the, I'll tell you when to change from now. You're going forward and you need to go back. Use the arrows there on the, Okay. I know. I need to increase her pay. <laughs> Is that where we need? That, yeah, I'll tell you when it's changed from now and make it easy for you. So uh, we don't know who the sheep and the goats, but Paul's here saying that uh, membership in the national Jewish nation didn't uh, guarantee salvation, just like membership here at Christ's Covenant doesn't guarantee salvation. Um, and you know, it's a I look out when I'm up, and I, I think all of you are sheep, but I don't know. You know, it, it could be that we have some goats among us. I mean, Jesus said there would be wheats and tares, and we wouldn't know till the end. Uh, but you can know that you're a sheep. Again, believe, and you'll be there. All right, the other, the other go fast forward to the number two reason argument in these chapters is God's historical purpose toward the Jewish nation has not failed because God, number two, God had previously revealed that all, not all Israel would be saved and that some Gentiles would be. That was his point in Romans 9, 25 through 29. If God had promised uh, in advance that all Jews would be saved and he failed to save them, then yes, he would have indeed failed, but no one can claim Failure on God's part is, um, 
as is the case, he foretold in advance that precisely what would happen. Namely, that many Jews would not believe and be scattered, and that many of the scattered Gentiles would be gathered to Christ. He proves this argument by citing Old Testament texts such as Isaiah 10, 22-23, which says, if you want to turn to it, For though your people Israel be as sand of the sea, only a remnant of them shall return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end, as decreed, in the midst of all the earth. And he quotes Isaiah 1.9, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. I'm still on two, boo. <laughs> Yet, I'll tell you when to turn. Did I? Oh, sorry. Um... <laughs> Someone like Katama and <laughs> Okay. And he said in Hosea 2. Ch- yeah, we're, we're going to be driving to Raleigh. I'm sure we'll have a, a long discussion about a lot of things. A lot of things. She, she asked me this morning, don't embarrass me like you did last week, last time, when I put her picture up. <laughs> So, all right, now you can go to number three. So, God's historical purpose toward the Jewish nation has not failed because the failure of the Jews, this argument number three, the failure of the Jews to believe was their own fault, not God. It wasn't God's fault. So, what did uh, they fail to believe? Uh, They failed to believe Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. Yes, Paul answers that it was because of the way they went about earning their own salvation themselves, as he showed in Romans 4. Um, So that was his third argument. Now we can go to number four. God's historical purpose toward the Jewish nation has not failed because, fourthly, some Jews, and Paul himself was an example, as we talked about, have believed and have been saved. So, by no means God hasn't rejected his people. I'm living proof of it. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, Abraham. As long as one, Paul is saying, as long as one person, Jewish person, has been saved, no one can claim that he has utterly rejected his people. There will always be a remnant. Okay, argument number five, next slide. God's historical purpose toward the Jewish nation has not failed because it always has been the case that not all Jews, but only a remnant, has been saved. I think we've gone over this, but uh, it was true with Jacob and Esau. It was true with the 11 disciples and Judas, for example. Um, But the point I think Paul was trying to make in Romans 11, 2 through 10, is that... um, there is still a large remnant. And just he, he uses Elijah as an example. You know, Elijah was feeling sorry for himself. And it's like, I'm the only one out here. Uh, and then God pointed out, no, Elijah, you're mistaken. There's 7,000 who have not yet bowed their knee to Baal. Okay, let's go to question uh, or argument number six. 
God's historical purpose toward the Jewish nation has not failed because, number six, the salvation of the Gentiles, which is now occurring, is meant to arouse Israel to envy and thus be the means of saving some of this. He develops this in the middle of chapter 11 in those verses, 11 through 24. Um, And it's one of the uh, most profound passages in the Bible because he's explaining that God has the right to do anything he wants. And it explains why he's acted as he has. Um, He he can do anything he wants. God does what he pleases, particularly with um, sinners who were his enemy. Uh, he can. He has a perfect right to judge them all. He can save who he wants. Uh, he can condemn who he wants. Since this is, he's just. Is uh, so. God's not merely writing them off. Uh, that's not the case. God is using the day of the Gentile salvation for the good of Israel. And there, it was um, to stir them out of their self righteousness and envy. Uh, and as a result, some were being saved. So the last and final argument of Paul uses to press that uh, God has not, uh, God's purpose toward the Jewish nation has not failed because in the end all Israel will be saved, he says. Now there in chapter 11, that's, that's one of the more controversial passages um, at the very end of 11. You might get the idea here that there will be a great revival of the Jewish nation. I mean, you might, it may be the way it is. That's where scholars, uh, uh, good Reformed scholars on both sides, if you, if, uh, if you think that's the case, you're in good company. If you think that's not the case, you're in good company. The question there is it's a little, it's up to interpretation whether that's what he means here or he means that all of true Israel. Remember we talked about how there's, there's the nation of Israel, and then there's true Israel. We are part of true Israel. We're grafted into that tree of Israel, right? And uh, I personally think that's the way it is, but I don't, I don't know. I lean on that interpretation, but uh, not, not everybody does. So anyway, uh, not to, I don't want to end on such ambiguity, but, uh, and, and I... I think, um, Darcy, where are you at, David? Give the mic to Darcy. I bet he has some interesting comments on this point. Oh, okay. Let's, uh, it's time to trip up the elder. When you uh, read Romans 9 through 11, and you come across the term Jew or Israel, and there is no context... How do you decide whether it's referring to the remnant or it's referring to the Jewish racial nation? Uh, And when you're doing your Reformed research, what passages do professors use to sway their hermeneutic to whether they're interpreting this passage properly or not? Because that determines the entire direction of each one of these pericopes or these little statements uh, and are they using the Old Testament? Are they using some of Paul that he wrote previous to Romans or some of Paul and what he used after he wrote Romans uh, to determine 
who Israel and, and the Jews are in the context of a remnant. All right, I, I have an answer for that, but before I answer, I want to just make sure this is not a rhetorical question. Is it a rhetorical question? Do you, do you have an idea? Because I'd be interested to hear what it is. How would you answer your own question, I guess, is what I'm asking. I'd answer my own question as having already read Paul and obviously a lot of the Old Testament to determine as you follow from Adam all the way down to Jesus who the remnant are and then from there you would extract uh, who's saved and who's not saved, who's secure or elect and not secure or elect. And, and, and that's the best you've got to go on. But Paul doesn't say that all the time in his context. Right. And therefore, we're kind of left, if you're pushing the passage, you're kind of left hanging, which is you're looking, when you read Romans, especially this part, you're looking for a measure and level of security. Now, I think you touched on it when you explained that, uh, well, your security doesn't, you're not asking the right question when you're saying, am I elect? You're asking the right question when you say, do I believe? And, and that's, I would, from my reading, I would assume that's where most reformed and, either, and even non-reformed look to for their, in, unless they're Arminian, uh, look right. for their uh, security and that he is your surety. And that's, and that's where they get that word surety from. Is, right. is, it, is as certain as a human being can, can be. Yeah. <clears throat> Your first thing you said was, the, was and I think it's very important we define the diff distinction between Jew and Israel. That was what you led off with, and I think that's, that's key. And, and obviously, in this passage, that's why, I guess why there's so many different views, but the, the distinction, I think, um, you can be... It's not the same. Jude does not equate naturally, necessarily with being Israel. And I think that was your first point, right? Um, and I think that's important to... That, uh, that's why I lean on... I'm not so sure. I hope there is a, a huge revival at the end of the Jewish nation. Uh, I think I saw Kevin's hand first over here. Well, well we can let... While you're there... So what you got, the Jeff? question is, um, there's a concern about elect, being elect or not. Is that what you're saying? Or no? Well, that's one of the implications of reading this. If you're reading it devotionally, you try to help you determine okay. the security. Or if you're, you're praising the Lord because you are saved, okay. whatever grounds you base that on. All right. So I'd, I would personally go back to Romans 8.16, last chapter. And uh, I'm reading from ESV. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So it's the Holy Spirit in you that bears witness that you are elect, is my answer. All right, let's go to Kevin. And then, see, I, I said we'd get out early. Forget that. We, we may be a while. When I... When I participate in the thinking about what we're talking about, I'm, I'm reminded of Jesus and how he talked to the Jews and, the, and the, the Jews there, and there were those that were his and those that were not his, and that was fairly clear of those that believed and didn't believe. He talked about, you know, who are my brothers and my mother, and those are the people that do the will of my father. You also see Stephen, and of course we're in, in men's Bible study, 
So if you don't come to men's Bible study, please come. It's really been a meaningful opportunity. I know that it's early for some, so I understand if you don't have work. But he's been doing, uh, Kyle's been doing Acts chapter 6 right now. We just got into 7. And you hear Stephen almost doing a very short version of what Paul is now teasing out in a very lengthy way. And so when I hear this, this thing is, okay, we keep teasing out how Israel is the beginning. And, but the way I look at it is, what did Jesus say? What did Ezekiel, when he's prophesying, what are all these prophets saying? You know, you've got the stiff-necked and you've got the ones that are true. And that's what I lean on when I, when I read it. And I guess one thing that also has been encouraging, and Shelby and I have talked about, talked about the boys last night, was just that God's gospel is so strong and so encouraging that just believe it started in the beginning and it starts and it goes to the end. That just believe in me. And I realize it's a simplistic way to say it, but the point is to believe in him and, and who he is and to be obedient to him. Very good. And um, I'm glad you brought up Stephen's speech. In fact, I was, it reminds me, I would encourage you all in preparation for the next six weeks that you dig into these passages if you want to um, do a little homework. Read that speech in Acts 7 and also as you read uh, these passages because it echoes what Paul is saying here, as you said, Kevin. Any Okay, so um, it's getting close to time we should quit. But we've got maybe uh, Q&A, maybe a question or two more if you have it. I'm Mr. Stephen here. Based on what you're saying, Kevin, it, and what helps me a lot is when you come across a scripture verse like we do at the end of uh, <clears throat> chapter 11 about mm-hmm. are they all the going to come or not? I, I, the, the best thing that I have learned is to look at the whole scripture, look at the whole counsel of God, see what is emphasized there. And I think, Kevin, you pretty much said that. Yeah. Thank you. Back to Darcy, back behind you, David. When you start with the first century uh, patriarchs, or fathers, church fathers, uh, and you read many of the godly men that have emerged between there and today, it would appear and seem that as they delve deeper, whether you're talking about Jonathan Edwards, John Piper, uh, Andrew Fuller, um, uh, John Murray, uh, pick whoever you want. Uh, it seems like the closer they get or the deeper they get in their fellowship with the Lord, they still stumble. If you read their autobiographies, they still stumble. They still question themselves and worry. Whether Even if they, it's almost total abandon and they give them every effort they of every waking moment is for the Lord. Even Spurgeon, there are questions such as arise in here. And is that really just, hey, I let a, the door cracked open and therefore Satan whispers in or the breeze comes through or something like that. But um, I guess I'm not quite certain that it's certain other than just casting your faith and your trust and your belief on the Lord, which is mm-hmm. kind of what Jeff said. Uh, but, uh, but the Holy Spirit does not 
it certainly right. doesn't in me reside 24-7, 100%. And because right. of that, right. there are still some feelings, issues that, that if nothing else, frustrate you and say, why, Lord, didn't I follow you? Uh, yeah. and, and that's, and maybe I'm asking for more than even scripture can promise, which then says, cast yourself on him. Thank you. Don. I don't, I don't know. David, we're going to go to Bill. Yep. He's going to, you're going to have the last word, Bill. While he's taking the mic, just to respond to that. I love what you said early there, Darcy, that, um, these, these great men all struggled mightily. And we we tend to think, you may look at Neil and Kyle and think, man, those guys have their act together. They struggle. All of us struggle at different degrees, of course, but it, we're all broken. Yes, Mr. Bill. I'll try to be brief. Be um, brief. Be, 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 be. Be brief, brother. Yeah. Be, be brief. Did you know there's a tension here? It says um, that... And I'll paraphrase in 11 that, you know, you should pass your, you know, you should fear because if God did not spare the branches, neither will he spare you. And Peter said, pass your time of sojourning here in fear. John Knox was asked whenever someone said he was fearless, he said, no, 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 not at all. I just fear God more than I do the queen. Now, in the light of that, Jesus says this, if you love me, keep my commandments. He says, why do you say that I'm Lord and you do not the things that I say? But see, it's because to Kevin, we don't believe. But now there's a remedy, a big one. Sonny White said that he's uh, been a Christian all his life, been in the ARP forever. But in the years he's been here, he's grown more than all put together. Why? It's because what it says in Romans 10 um, and in other places in the scripture that what brings faith or belief in our heart is the rhema of Christ, the proclaimed word. And, you know, we, we go in a few minutes to worship, and there are, you know, there's a time, you know, when we worship, there's a time when we, but there's a time for the word. Kyle or whoever's preaching will step into a full foot of wood that's elevated tall. There's a big Bible unfolded on it. And pictorially, it says something. He's wearing a Geneva gown. It hides everything but pretty much just him speaking. And as he talks, and as even Neil and others have uh, alluded to, uh, it's the words of Christ. And what happens is it brings faith in our heart to believe. And what happens when we believe is we do the things that Jesus says, and that's where assurance comes from, where you look back and see, I'm not doing like I used to do. 
And your friends that meet you say you've changed. You're not quite the curmudgeon or the, I won't say some other things, that you used to be. Well, Sonny White's testimony in the Word of God. That's it. Yep. All right. Um, we're going to have a cookie reception here in momentarily, so we need to wrap it up. Uh, celebrating, uh, I won't start to say John Knox, but Knox uh, Bash. Uh, it's baptism today. So, last slide, boo. Um, so, have you ever, you, you may, Neil used to say, uh, um, if you, when you get it, you, you have, there are times when you just have to break out in song. Well, I think that's the idea here with how he ends this chapter 11. He's, he's gone through all the mysteries of God. And he has this doxology, and, and I'm convinced it was double forte, triple forte. He was shouting. And so what I want, the way I want us to end, a, end our lesson today is I want us all to loudly say what Paul said here to all of this. He's gone through all. This ends the, the indicative part of this book. He's going to go into the imperatives. But here at the end of this indicatives, he screams, I think. All this, all these mysteries. Oh, the depth. I want to, let's stand and let's recite it together. It's, it's on the screen. All right, everybody ready? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Go in peace.